Blog Talk Radio. Sounds like fun. So, 
Well, I was I was raised in New Orleans, so I got my fill of Mardi Gras before I turned eighteen. So, but I would I would say if you've never been, it's something everyone should experience at least once. That's what I've been told. One right. of these well, years, here I'll have a couple to plan years. that. <laughs> you were here a couple years ago for, uh, I think, AFS was here? Yes, the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting was there uh, a number of years ago. But I spent most of my time actually at the meeting, unfortunately. Well, fortunately. Oh. <laughs> no time for partying on Bourbon Street. Correct. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess, uh, Michael, do you have anything to add or you want to get the show started? Hey, I'm more than interested in getting this show started. I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks. All right. All right. Well, first of all, um, I think it might help people to, to, to know a little bit about how DNA uh how it was discovered, how it was used in or began to be used in criminal cases. Sure. Well, the first case it was used in was actually in England, um, in uh, Leicester, England. Uh, There had been a murder of a, and I can't remember whether it was a 14- or a 15-year-old girl back in the early 80s. And a few years later, there was a second murder of a 15-year-old in a, in a neighboring town. Um, and at that time, Alec Jeffries had developed um, forensic D or DNA testing that the police asked him to use on this first case in a forensic manner. Um, they had actually developed a suspect uh, with the last name of Buckland, and he had confessed to one of the murders, but not the second. And Alec Jeffries had used the technique, which ultimately was RFLP methodology, uh, which stands for Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism. He used a multi um, locust probe, which actually looked at multiple areas of DNA at one time in one test. And he determined that the same person was the murderer of both girls and that it was not Buckland. Uh, The police went on a sort of... uh, collection of all the men in the area, Um, anybody, they basically went almost door to door collecting samples from people uh, in the area, all the men, and tested thousands of samples and did not find a match. And ultimately, what they found was um, one of the individuals who lived in a town where they were collecting the samples had asked a friend to pose as him to give a sample, and that's why they didn't catch anybody. Uh, Someone overheard a conversation discussing that, reported it to the police. The police then went and collected a sample from um, Pitchfork, who was the offender. They got a match, and he ultimately confessed to the crimes and pled guilty. 
So that was back in 86 uh, was the first time that it was used in the court setting in England. Around the same time that technology was had been transferred to um, the United States and it was slightly different. We were using in the United States single locus probes. So we were looking at one area of DNA using RFLP methodology. Um, and then once we developed a profile with that one locus, we would strip the membrane and uh, use a second probe to look at a second area of DNA and continued that. Originally, it was just four locations that we were testing that grew over time. Um, but the first U.S. case that was uh, where it was used in court was, I believe, in 1987 in a Florida case. Um, and a man by the name of, um, I think it was, um, oh gosh, why is it Andrews, um, was uh, convicted in Florida. Okay. And, of course, we've seen it grow, and, and we've seen people actually now coming to expect DNA evidence all the time in every case, no matter what the circumstances. But it's also proved uh, helpful on cold cases. Yes, that's very true. It is extremely helpful in cold cases. Um, and, you know, using today's technology, there's so many different ways that it can be used in cold cases. Um, DNA, uh, even though it, the first uses in the U.S. were in 1987, it really wasn't used uh, routinely um, until the 90s. And mm -hmm. with the RFLP technology, you required large quantities of DNA, and it had to be fairly high quality. And by high quality, I mean that it couldn't be degraded, it couldn't be old, it couldn't be DNA that was exposed to either um, environmental effects, which would break it down, or chemical effects that would cause the DNA to deteriorate. Um, we used to typically say that um, a blood stain had to be about the size of a quarter in order for us to be able to develop a DNA profile from it. Um, of course, as the technology progressed over the years, the size of the stains got less and less. And through the use of the second type or generation of DNA testing, which utilized uh, PCR methodology, um, which stands for polymerase chain reaction, you could use much smaller quantities of DNA and still be able to develop profiles. And so you went from needing a stain about the size of a quarter to being able to analyze a stain which was the size of a pinhead. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've also, <clears throat> excuse me, we've also seen a lot of DNA exonerations, although mostly those would be sexual assault because you can definitively, conclusively rule out uh, a person based on the evidence left behind in the sexual assault. Yes, that's true. I mean, certainly it hasn't only been sexual assault, although it's most commonly used with sexual assault cases. There have been homicide cases where, 
um, especially pre-DNA, where a blood stain may have had a particular blood type, which could have matched a defendant, but then subsequently, years later, if the blood stain was tested in a murder case, um, you know, they could exonerate the person. At that point, if there was no reason to believe that the blood was placed there at a previous time, if if there was reasonable um, conclusion that it was from the actual crime itself, then um, certainly there have been numerous murders which have been um, where there have been exonerations as well. Right, and <clears throat> kind of a segue in in general crime scene because you also have experience uh, when you're in Albuquerque with doing crime scene processing. Yes, that's correct. I we were and trained in crime scenes, and we uh, I was on call about once every six weeks um, to go out and assist in processing crime scenes. And most of them were homicides or situations where uh, it was suspected that the um, victim could potentially die. Okay. And I want to just kind of segue a little bit into that and talk about because a lot of some people have sort of strange ideas in discussion of criminal cases. For example, they think that every surface, everything should be swabbed for DNA. Every uh, piece of physical evidence, a beer can, a Coke can, should be seized and processed for DNA. And I want to talk about a little bit about how do you go about when you're at a crime scene determining where you collect evidence or where you where you try to collect evidence? Is it, like I said, a, a everything? And then if it's a murder in a house, you go through every room of the house. That's not generally what would happen. Um, now, I have to say that back when I was processing crime scenes, it was prior to us actually using DNA. Um, but, I mean, certainly the way you process crime scene is still fairly similar. I mean, you uh, the first thing that happens is you assess the scene. You know, was it, what type of a scene is it? Is it a shooting? Um, you know, was the victim shot? Was the victim strangled? Was the victim stabbed? Um, once you determine what type of scene you're looking at. I mean, if somebody's been shot, obviously you want to start looking for bullet casings or bullet fragments or um, identifying, you know, was the house, if it occurred in a house, was there, was the whole house turned upside down, in which case you might have to process the entire crime or the entire home. Um, If it was contained to one room, and there was only one room that looked like there had been activity in it, you would certainly want to concentrate in that one room. Um, If it's a two-story house and everything appears to have happened on the first floor um, and absolutely nothing is disturbed on the second floor, there really isn't a necessity to go up and process everything on the second floor. So it's, I mean, you could literally spend days processing a crime scene, uh, especially if it's a large crime scene, 
Um, so you really need to focus on what happened, where it happened, and generally you would limit your crime scene searches and evidence collection to those areas, or else you'd be chasing your tail, collecting right. evidence from other rooms that may have absolutely nothing to do with the crime scene whatsoever. Exactly. And also I think it's um, uh, you might end up with evidence or or well, yeah, you might end up linking somebody who had nothing to do with the crime, but their DNA is in the house because they washed the dishes or they drank from a cup or they, you know, smoked a cigarette and left it in the ashtray. Um, there's very a potential true. for that as well. Quite, it, very I true. Think, uh, clouding the issues. Yes, that's very true. And I think, you know, Exterior crime scenes or outdoor crime scenes oftentimes may be more difficult than something that occurs in a home because in a home you obviously have the four walls or you know of the room or the limitations of the you know the of the house itself uh to limit your crime scene search when someone is discovered out in the woods, you don't know how large your crime scene really is. Um, and in that sense, you start looking for, you know, do you see drag marks near the body? Was the person taken from the side of the road and dragged into the woods? Um, if you don't see uh, an area or, or signs of what could um, define the limits of the crime scene, you may need to look a lot further um, than just the area immediately surrounding the body. Right. And then also, um, did y'all, did you ever in your experience have, for example, you have a murder that occurs in a home that you sealed the home and the police had custody of it for an indefinite period of time or kept a vehicle for an indefinite period of time? Um, most of the crime scenes that we were involved in, I mean, we would certainly seal the house. There would be no access to it. Um, we would process the crime scene. Majority of the time, the processing of the crime scene would take, I mean, it could take upwards of 20, 24 hours. Um, I can only think of one or two cases where we might have, had um, the home sealed for four or five days. And generally, I think the the one that I can think of offhand uh, was an officer-involved shooting. And so it was, um, it, and there was a lot of, um, a lot of shots fired in that situation. And mm-hmm. so there was, a lot of trying to figure out directionality of bullets and things like that that took a lot longer. Um, but, yes, yeah, certainly houses could be sealed and potentially are. Right. But, most but not indefinitely. Not it, usually it, indefinitely. It's not an indefinitely, you know, through the trial, through direct appeal, through post-conviction. Oh, no, Although I no, do know no. that that... I do know that that happened with the Jeffrey McDonald case. He was the Army captain on Fort Bragg. 
right. who murdered his wife and daughters. They, the yeah. army did. They sealed that apartment and never, you know, never reused it. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was, that's the only one I know of. Uh-huh. And then yeah, also something that's interesting. Uh, something else that's interesting is that I, I've seen a lot of cases in research where it seems like when you're processing crime scene, you have like an overview trying to figure out what happened, where it happened. But then you, you, as you go into it, you look again and you find evidence here and evidence there. And sometimes it, it can be, you know, two or three times and finding, you know, bullet casings on the fifth day doesn't mean they weren't there. It's just that they were under something or, you know, rolled under a couch and you finally on the fifth day start moving furniture. Yes, that's it's true. not a, you know, it's not a, you find, you're going to find everything in 24 hours and that's it. No, especially depending type on of situation. That's right. And, and depending on the crime itself, I'm yes, it's, you, there's certainly a methodical way to do it. And the first thing that occurs is there is an overview. I mean, one of the first things that you do is you take overall pictures of the scene exactly how it is before anything should be touched or moved. Um, And then you just start zeroing in and, and you'll start marking pieces of evidence that you want to collect. Um, And then pictures will be taken with those markers Pictures will be taken with scales to show sizes of whether it's a bullet casing, whether it's a knife, whether it's a blood stain, um, and so on. And you take off the first layer or collect the first layer of evidence. And yes, you certainly can find more. If a rug is lifted, you might find, you might not have seen a bullet hole in the rug, especially back in the day when shag rugs were. Um, prevalent. You might not see a bullet hole in a shag rug, but when you pick up the rug, you can see the hole in the floor. Yeah, and so certainly it it is a layered type of um, deconstruction. Yeah, and that's a perfect way to to describe it. And then to move into now with DNA... Um, what are the collection methods that are used by crime scene techs to collect DNA evidence from, or potential DNA evidence? And I think it's also important to note you don't always find DNA evidence. That's correct. You don't always find DNA evidence. Um, generally in a crime scene or even an item, there, there's two two ways that evidence is submitted. If you're at a crime scene and let's say there is blood on the floor, you're going to use a swab. You're going to take a dry swab. If it's a if it's a liquid blood, you can just collect it with a dry swab. If the blood is already dried, you use distilled water uh, to moisten the swab and then swab the dried blood to collect it onto the swab, let the swab dry, seal it up, and submit it to the lab. Um, if there is an an item that can be collected in its entirety, oftentimes, let's say it's on a pillow in a home, 
oftentimes the entire pillow may be collected and submitted to the lab. I mean, we've had doors submitted to the lab. Um, Other people would take a knife or, you know, somehow chisel out uh, a sample from a door rather than removing the entire door. Um, People might cut a portion of a curtain. Other police agencies might collect the entire curtain and submit it. So it's there's different ways to collect items. Um, traditionally, using a swab is the best, um, or scraping the stain from, say, a wall or cutting a portion of the wall. So it, it really depends on the surface, what type of surface, the sample is deposited on, um, how easy it is to collect it from it, and um, and the laboratories oftentimes, uh, specific laboratories will have specific requirements. Some labs won't allow an entire door to be submitted because they don't have storage facilities for something like that. So um, in that sense, they may actually go out to the crime scene to collect it themselves. It's really okay. dependent upon the lab and and the agency and the relationship, how close they are, how far away they are. Right, right. And it's and in that and it once you get the the, the samples, what how you what testing you do, that's what you determine, not the police. Um, Is generally, that yes, yes, generally. Um, they will let the laboratory, uh, for instance, if they bring in a pillow with a blood stain, um, they may say, we think that um, this blood stain was from the, a cut on um, the uh, the offender's hand, and you'll know what test to run on it. Um, so generally, they'll give you a a overall picture of what they're requesting as far as what questions they have and then you can determine what tests to run to answer the question that they may have. So in that case, is this blood from the suspect? You test it and you compare the suspect and the victim or if they don't have a suspect, is this the victim's blood? If it's not the victim's blood, you can let them know, no, this is not the victim's blood. If you develop a suspect, you can submit their sample. Okay. All right. And you do, I think it's also important, the lab analysts, the crime scene tech, they do need a certain amount of information from the investigators uh, in order for them to know what tests to do or what, what they're looking for. Yes. It's not something where they say, here's here's this evidence, you tell us what it says, and not and give you any background or any information about the case. You know, it's kind of an interesting situation because there's a lot of question today in, as far as um, bias is concerned. I mean, as a laboratory analyst, you should be testing the evidence and whatever the result is, is the result. You make a comparison to known reference samples. Um, and, and there are some questions or some concerns about 
if an analyst knows a scenario, will they be more likely to, um, or, or will they have a bias to begin with? Um, and so there are some laboratories that have set up basically evidence triage units. So there will be an analyst or a group of individuals who will be the go-between um, the investigator, so they'll know what questions are be, or, or what questions are being asked, and they will tell the analyst test this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, and this piece of evidence using um, you know traditional autosomal STR testing, or test this you know these three items, but we need you to use YSTR testing, and it creates a a, a barrier to the analyst in that sense they basically don't have any information about the um about the situations of the alleged crime um but there has to be somebody who has some knowledge of it and if you don't have that in between triage unit then yes i mean you do need to know a little bit about what it is that you, what questions you need to answer as an analyst in order to know what testing to follow through with i I totally agree i don't think I don't think any lab should do blind testing at least as far as you know it, you've got to know if you're, if you're looking for semen you've got to know the presumptive and then the con- confirming what tests to do you can't just get a sample and say, okay, test this." Because there are so many different things that it could be. And I think it's also interesting that some analysts, they don't, they say biological material rather than saying semen, saliva, blood, sweat. Well, there are some body, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. um, And is that because they didn't test to determine whether it was semen, blood, saliva, sweat, and in in the context of court testimony, you can only testify to what you know based on your own handling of, or your own testing. You, if somebody else determined it was blood, you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily say yes, it was blood because you didn't do that test. Well, generally, if a sample is tested in your laboratory, even if you're not the person who has tested it, uh, you should be able to rely on another analyst's uh, determination that this is a blood sample. Oh, okay. um, especially if you're familiar with the protocols. And, and in that sense, if it was somebody in your own laboratory, generally you have their case notes and can verify that they ran their positive controls, their negative controls, and that the test that they performed gave specific results, and you would also draw the conclusion that this is blood. Um, But there are a lot of laboratories now that are not screening for specific body fluids any longer, or they might do a presumptive test for blood, um, and because it's only presumptive and they're not performing a confirmatory test, um, then they can say it's a presumptive. The test revealed a positive result, uh, positive presumptive result for blood, and then go on to just say the DNA from the sample, and they wouldn't necessarily the DNA from the blood um, because they didn't do a confirmatory test. Um, 
in sexual assault cases with the tremendous backlog in um, rape kits that haven't been tested and, and now the big push to test them all. Um, a lot of laboratories have just gone to a male screening, so they extract samples uh, and then will quantitate it. And during the quantitation of uh, the sample to determine how much overall DNA there is, you can also determine whether there's male DNA. And so if you have a sexual assault kit and you extract, say, um, swabs from the sexual assault kit and you quantitate them for both overall human DNA as well as male, if there's no male DNA, there's no reason to move forward with the analysis of that kit. And so a lot of laboratories um, aren't performing the presumptive tests for semen and confirmatory tests for semen up front. Okay. Um, now, some of them will go back, if it's going to go to court, will go back and test for semen and look for spermatozoa um, to be able to testify in court that, yes, this DNA is consistent with having come from sperm or from semen. Okay. All right. That's it. That's very interesting, but that answers the question. It was, a, uh, I think it was Jody Arias' case, where the, the analyst was not referring to blood described by the police's blood appears to be blood in the pictures, but she kept saying biological material. And that was what kind of threw me. So that's that's interesting. So she may not have confirmed, even done a presumptive, she may have just tested and found DNA from Jody Arias and the victim. And that was, you know, that was all she needed to do. That Yeah, and that's possible. It used to be back in the day that you would run the presumptive test, which was a, what's called a phenothaline test. It was a very simple color test. You would take a dry swab, run it over the red stain. You would add uh, two or three different chemicals in a specific order, and if it turned a bright pink color, it would be a positive for blood and then the next step would be a confirmatory test, and you could do that with um, either by developing crystals um, and then looking at the at a chemical and if look at it microscopically, if there were crystals there and it was called a Takayama test, that would confirm that it's blood, and then you would go to a third step, which would identify whether it was human blood, and you would do that by um, taking a a small um, portion of it in water and putting it into an agarose gel, which had little holes in it, and you would put an anti-human serum in one well and you would sample in the other. And if it formed a precipitin line, you could say, okay, now it's human blood. Obviously, with each one of those tests, you were taking a little bit more of the sample, a little bit more of the sample. With DNA technology, because we can get DNA from such much small samples, we don't want to use the samples to run those other tests because you might not have anything left uh, for the DNA. So now the presumptive test is pretty quick and easy. It doesn't consume a whole lot. If you, and then generally they would go directly to um, testing it with DNA. Really, the DNA is human-specific. You're not going to get a DNA profile from a dog blood or from a cat blood or from rabbit blood. 
So generally, if you get the DNA profile and you have a presumptive sample, some people, I mean, only because they haven't done a confirmatory, we'll call it biological material, we'll say biological material, or from the presumptive blood. Right. Okay. That's That explains... That explains a lot, and that's very interesting that the the prior methodology, there was a risk of consuming the entire sample. Oh, sure. Back in, yes, definitely. When you look at a lot of um, cold cases where there's been a lot of testing that has been done, you'll see two or three tests that were run, maybe a fourth test, and then, you know, you get to a point where oftentimes you see, you know, the quantity is not sufficient for additional testing, and it's uh, it, it can be very frustrating when you know that there was something there that originally, you know, could have given you a lot of answers today with DNA, but there's just no more sample left. Right. And now another thing I've read about is it's called MVAC, and it is a new collection method. Well, the MVAC is used in the laboratory. It's usually not, well, I suppose it could be brought to a scene, but it's something I've uh, seen more being used in the laboratory. And it's used on uh, clothing items. Uh, or something generally that would have a fabric. I mean, it could be used on pillow, pillowcases, um, things like that. The MVAC is, the way I like to describe it, is very similar to um, a rug cleaner where uh, a liquid water is sprayed on the fabric and then... um, because cells would be transferred more easily in a liquid than it is um, if you're just trying to vacuum it up by itself, um, there's a liquid sprayed and then a vacuum is applied. There is a filter which is um, basically at the end of the hose And so the liquid will come up through the filter and any cellular material will get caught on the filter on the outside, which you can then cut the filter and you have that cellular material that you can run through DNA. Um, And so that is used on clothing, on pillowcases, sheets, things like that in order to collect cellular material from those items. Okay. <clears throat> because the and other option used the, to be. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. The other say, option. Typically, what you would do is you would either take a swab again and try to swab the cells from the material, but this allows the cellular material to be sucked up into onto that filter. Right. Okay. That's, and so that would more likely than not be something where the entire piece of evidence would have to go to the lab. Yes, yes, in that case. Okay. Or okay. Yes. Or the cutting could be taken and and perhaps used. Exactly. How big is it? The size of a dust buster? Is it the size oh, it's of a, a stylus? Um, okay. I would say it's probably well, gosh. 
what could I um I was going to say flashlight. <laughs> no, it's 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 larger than that. I would probably say it is the size of it's smaller than a a small microwave, but it's um I think it's I'm picturing it maybe a large toaster or something. I mean, but it, okay. it, yeah. <laughs> And it's, you have to have the hose on it. And so, I mean, I guess it could be a little, like I said, you probably oh, it, could take it, but it would be a little bulky. It probably, okay, and it probably has a, a tank for distilled water because it has to have the tank contained. Yes, it's definitely right. So the water that gets sucked up is, yes, is contained in distilled. something. Yes, right. Okay, so, yeah, a small toaster, Okay. So that's probably not something too practical. Now, when somebody figures out how to make it the size of a dustbuster, maybe Could be. do you know anybody who's mechanically inclined? <laughs> <laughs> I've got an old steamer that I never use. I can send it, and maybe he can no, figure. <laughs> and I have to say, I have never used the MVAC, so. Um, you know, I don't know how mobile they really are. Okay, all right. I just That's don't just know that they're like, brought out. I don't. I yeah. Don't know that they're brought out to a scene. Right. I I think I read about it being used in the context of something where swabs uh, were swabs were used on an item of clothing and no DNA was detected. And so they're saying, well, the MVAC can do a better job it in does. the context of more DNA testing. Yes. It, it Well, it collects more DNA than just a swabbing from the material would. Okay. Okay. Because really when you think about it common sense-wise, if you're swabbing something and you're using a swab and you're, you're moving it over an item of material – you're just as likely, well, some of the cells will get onto the cotton fibers of the swab, but you could also just be moving more of the cellular material onto the cotton, onto the, the fabric of, that it's on to begin with. Right. So it's right. not, but the that vacuum force helps, pull it from the material and generally the recovery of DNA using the MVAC, um, at least from the literature that I've seen and in cases where it's been used, uh, they do get larger quantities of DNA than just from a simple swabbing. And there have been situations where a laboratory has swabbed an item and then, uh, an MVAC has been used on that same item and additional DNA or more DNA has been recovered from it. Okay. That'll be interesting as years go by to see that technology uh, in use. Because I I understand it's relatively new. Um, It's been around for a few years. Um, The one thing with the MVAC is that it will collect any cellular material which is on those uh, on that particular item, and so you don't 
No, well, it's just like with anything else. You really don't know, is this truly related to the crime or is this from somebody who sneezed on the shoulder walking by down the street? Okay, okay. And also with um, EDTA, it's used as a preservative in blood vials. But it's also in laundry detergent, hand soap, hand lotion. So you, you, the MVAC would also be picking up any background EDTA wouldn't it's possible it would pick up yeah anything of a cellular nature now if it um I, I and honestly I don't know whether EDTA is water soluble and whether it would um be in the liquid portion and and flow through the filter I'm not sure okay. about that okay all right we'll we'll leave that one <laughs> And um, now is the what Michael, this one for me is what Michael likes to call the meat and potatoes of the show. In your lab to uh, process DNA samples, reference samples and or uh, evidence samples, what is the equipment that you use starting from the first machine that you use? Um, well... To process DNA, uh, the first thing that you do is extract it. Uh, to extract the DNA, you simply either take a cutting or the swabbing, and you will add chemicals um, to it to break open the cell of the DNA, or excuse me, the cell to release the DNA from the nucleus. Um, once that has been released, uh, you uh, want to separate or purify that DNA from the rest of the cellular material. So really a centrifuge is one of the first pieces of equipment, and the centrifuge uh, you use just to spin down all of the cellular debris um, from the DNA, which has been released and is in the liquid. Um, so you use a centrifuge. Then when you quantitate the DNA, uh, you use what's called a real-time PCR methodology, and um, so you use um, a real-time PCR instrument for, um, and it's really we used a 9700 uh, from ABI to um, quantitate our DNA. Um, and you'll use a genetic analyzer. Well, you have to amplify the DNA, which looks at the specific areas of DNA. It just makes millions of copies of the particular areas that you want to analyze. Um, to do that, you use a thermal cycler, uh, and that's just an instrument which uses temp temperature fluctuation to um, separate the double strands of DNA, allow it to be copied um, and then uh, you run it through cycles so that it basically exponentially multiplies the number of fragments that you can then visualize, and that's done in a genetic analyzer. Um, and so those are the basic pieces of instrument that or equipment that we use, pipettes. Okay. And um, I know it. I know in early technology it was. Um, running the 
an electric charge through a, a gel. Yes. And creating the electrophor, which I can't pronounce. In the original um, restriction fragment length polymorphism DNA or RFLP, we would extract the DNA and then you would literally, um, you would cut it up into millions of pieces and you would put those pieces into a little slot in an agarose gel and the electrical current, you would it would run from um, negative to positive, the electrical current would separate the DNA based on the size of those fragments. Larger fragments wouldn't move through the agarose gel as fast as the smaller ones and so you would create this smearing of DNA fragments and then you would use a probe which would be the exact sequence of a specific area of DNA and you would this probe would find its exact mate on um of DNA out of all of those fragments that you've separated and you would expose it to usually an X-ray film, um, and you would end up with a band. Um, and those were called autorads. Today's technology using polymerase chain reaction or PCR, what we're doing is um, they still have specific areas of DNA that we're looking for, except these areas are called short tandem repeats or STRs. And so we know that there are specific areas of DNA where everyone has these STR sections. It's just that you might have a different number uh, or a different length fragment than I do. Uh, You might have two bands that are, let's just say, a 10 and a 12 uh, repeats, and I might have a 15 and a 17 repeat. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... When they're run today, it's run through um, on the instrument. It still uses, um, it runs through a column, and the fragments are separated still based on size, but they have a fluorescent tag. And so what you end up with today almost looks like a, a, a chart of heartbeats almost. I mean, they're peaks on a... On a um, okay that come out and um that's called an electropharogram. Okay. All right. Yeah, I was thinking of autorads. Okay. The gel and the x ray. Yep. That was what I was but this is the like but the electro and, and does do, does the computer technology now also calculate because I, as I understood it, with the autorads you actually counted those dots to figure out how many markers or whatever you 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 had to physically look at the the autorad and count to determine 10 12 17 15 whatever the profile is well with the autorads in the early testing um we we used genetic ladders so we had fragments um of DNA, and we knew exactly uh, 
how many bases were in each of the fragments that made up the ladder. I mean, it was basically just a genetic ruler. So we would have in the gel, the first lane would be a genetic ruler. Then we would have a known sample, which was our positive control. Then you would potentially have a negative um, control where there was all of your chemicals but no DNA in it. Then you would have your sample from your crime scene or let's say two samples then you might have another genetic ruler um, and then you might have reference samples and another genetic ruler and so you would look at the um, actual um, positioning of the two they were just bands on the gel and you could sort of eyeball it. I mean, you could look at the reference sample profile and look at the evidence. And if it looked like they were close or approximately the same distance apart, or um, then what you would do is you would actually size your autorad and we would use um, an instrument where we would mark each of the genetic ruler bands and then we would mark our evidence bands and the software would extrapolate you know if you told if you told the program that this particular band um is the 10,000 bases and the one right below it is 8,000 bases and the evidence sample is somewhere in between it it would extrapolate between the 10,000 and the 8,000 to approximate what the evidence band was or what the size of the evidence band was. And you would do that for the known reference. You would do it for your evidence. And as long as your evidence and your known reference was within approximately 2.5%, um, then you would consider that a potential match. And you would do that for each one of the bands that you saw, and you would do it for each one of the locations that you tested. And they all had to be within a fairly close within that two and a half percent in order for you to say this is consistent. Okay. And it is, and you do, and to this day, you still say it's, you either include or don't exclude. You exclude or you don't have enough information. Yes. We either, we either exclude and you can exclude with a hundred percent certainty. This could absolutely not have come from this individual because the banding pattern is not the same. Um, You can, uh, I mean, there are times where you just simply don't have enough information or you can't draw a conclusion, and those would be inconclusive results. And then there are times where the banding pattern looks um, the same, then then they all fall within 2.5%, and therefore you would include them as a potential contributor. Now, once you include somebody as a potential contributor, there's generally only two reasons. They either are the source of that sample, or if they're not the source of that sample, then it's somebody else who has a similar banding pattern that they do. And at that point, you will calculate statistics to determine how common or rare that particular banding pattern is found in the general population. Okay. All right. And we we may get a little bit more into that later on. Sure. Um, 
And then Michael, do you wanna you wanna pause here to take a break before we move on? Yeah, we can absolutely do that, Lisa. Okay. I'm gonna I need to turn the heater down. Um it's a little bit too warm in here for me. <laughs> okay. Well we'll so, go ahead and take I'm gonna a turn... break. We'll in about what, three minutes, somewhat like that? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, sounds good. We'll be right back with more clear and convincing. I just want to note real quick, um, Luke Perry passed away today. And yeah, he served he served as King Bacchus thirty two in two thousand. Oh wow. Yeah, that's it's really it's that. ironic that I went to this Bacchus thing to see Jensen Ackles yesterday and today Luke Perry passes away. Oh, this kinda of And odd. he was fifty two. Yeah. It's one of those weird things. 
that I notice. <laughs> so, all right, let's get back to the back to the wonderful and informative show that we're doing. This is one of those shows I almost lost track of time if I hadn't been right. willing in here. Because <laughs> our temperatures went down to 40 yesterday. Yeah, we're colder than that. I know. <laughs> so, all right. So, um, moving on now. Uh, is that all the equipment? I mean, have we covered everything? I'm trying to see. Yeah. Yes. Okay, yes. sorry. <laughs> yes, I mean it really it's it's there's not I know today you know certainly with the advances in uh DNA technology um you know there are sequences sequencers that are being used now um but the majority of the equipment is um yeah what I had described earlier for what is being used in the traditional types of DNA testing today. And before any equipment, any new technology goes into crime labs for use, it has to be uh, tested and and determined that it gets accurate results and uh, the results can be reproduced and and it can be relied on. Oh, yes. There are a tremendous... A uh, number of validation studies that have to be performed before you can bring any e- new equipment online, before you bring any new test kits online. Um, anytime you want to make the slightest variation to your protocols, you have to run validation tests to show that you can reliably reproduce your uh, the results and that um, to determine the limitations of the testing, the sensitivity of the testing, uh, you have to look at mixture studies. Um, you know, there's a whole as part of the accreditation process, and um, all forensic DNA laboratories must be accredited. There is a whole list of standard validation. Um, validations that must be performed prior to being able to bring anything online. Okay. All right. That's, um, that's, uh, and you participated in validation studies when you were at the FBI Academy or you went to the FBI laboratory. I remember reading that on your resume or your CV. I was, uh, yes, I was invited to um, participate in the Visiting Scientist Program um, back in 1990, and I did uh, participate in some validation. uh, Actually, it was more research studies than validation. The validation would have been done at the laboratory, um, but we were, I was working on various um, research projects and developmental research projects. Okay. As well right. as and as well as um, database development, because at that time they were uh, developing the databases for the RFLP. Okay. All right. All right. And um, of course, 
one of the important things and one of the things you need uh, in evaluating evidence from a crime scene as for DNA, um, you need a reference sample from the victim, any suspects, and any other persons who may have had contact. If it's a murder in a home, people who lived in the home with the victim. And you can't tell anything about DNA without those, without a reference sample from someone. Um, well, back in the day of RSLP, yes, we absolutely had to have comparison samples. Um, today, with uh, PCR and the STR technology, um, we do have the DNA database, the CODIS database. And so you don't necessarily have to have a reference sample. You can certainly develop a profile from an item of evidence. Um, It is most helpful to have the victim. Um, So you can rule out that it is the victim's blood, say, if you have samples at a crime scene and you have a dead body uh, and there is a blood spot, you know, 100 yards away by the door, um, you certainly want to know, is this the victim's blood or it, could this be the blood, fr- blood from uh, the perp- a perpetrator? Um, so, yes, definitely having the reference sample from the victim. Um, and then, but you don't always have to have a sample from a suspect today because you can always run it through the CODIS database to determine whether there are hits. And that's, you know, a lot of crimes uh, are... Um, solved in that manner on right on cold case right. now uh that's a, that's another uh, you're bringing up codis um you're you have been with a private lab but you did you did work for law enforcement could labcorp uh roche or cellmark or bode can they submit to codis no, private laboratories cannot submit samples directly to CODIS. Um, there were a number of government laboratories that would contract with a private laboratory to perform the DNA testing on the um, offender samples, let's say, and then that data would be sent back to the either state crime lab or uh, county crime lab, whoever was contracting with them. Uh, they would review that data and basically take ownership of that data, and they would have to go through and look at all of the um, the testing, all of the uh, worksheets, and uh, look at the electropharograms. And then once they review it and agree with it, then they can upload that information into the um, either their state. CODIS system or the federal CODIS system, um, but it was but the private laboratories did not have any direct access to it. Okay, and also CODIS has you can't submit a partial if you only have a partial profile because of deterioration or degradation of the DNA, then you you have to have a certain you have to meet certain criteria. Uh, have a full profile in order to submit to CODIS or for um, it to be submitted to CODIS? It didn't have to be a complete profile. 
they had to have um, 10 out of okay. the original 13 in order to submit an evidentiary profile into CODIS to search. Now, there were caveats that um, a laboratory could do a one-time and what they called a keyboard search. Um, so it's not uploaded into the system to remain there to be searched periodically, but you could, a, a laboratory or a state laboratory could do a keyboard search, just key in, let's say, the partial profile that they um, had developed, and, and it still had to meet certain criteria. Um, and then if there was any evidence or if there was any uh, leads that were uh, hit on for that, they could pursue those investigative leads, but the sample and that profile would not be in the CODIS system Okay. to be routinely searched. It was just a one-time search. All right. And then with reference samples, when you receive them, what are the forms that you or that a state crime lab would receive? The reference samples, uh, early on they were blood samples, but subsequently uh, they become buckle swabs. And so oral swabs, the of the, yeah, oral swabs of the cheek and the gum area, yes. Okay, and that takes um, that takes epithelial cells from the mouth. That's correct. Okay, because I I did a a, D, a doggy DNA test and I had to swab my dog's mouth, which was fun because he almost ate the swab. Uh huh. <laughs> I did uh, an Ancestry.com DNA and I had to spit into yes. a cup. <laughs> Yeah, I would have preferred to do a buckle swab. Yeah, because <laughs> it took me, and you, you have to get up, and you can't, you can't eat or drink anything, and you have to do it first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not a morning person, so that was always that was a lot of fun. Well, the ancestry tests usually acquire a much larger quantity of DNA because they're testing mm-hmm. so many different areas of your DNA, and that's why you have to provide a, a saliva sample. Whereas right. to just look at the areas that we test for in the forensic arena, an oral swabbing is more than sufficient. Yeah, and that's because you're not testing the areas that make us human or have two legs or, or eye color, hair color, height. You're testing kind of areas that don't really have any, kind of don't have a purpose. They're not part of any code for our, our bodies. As well, I understand the literature I read. Right. The majority of and the I've, areas I've that we're you. testing for, yes, do not code for um, specific genes or specific diseases or specific, they are areas um, yeah, generally that have um, not been associated with any type of um, genetic information that could be used either by insurance companies or medical companies to 
mm-hmm. diagnose you for something. Usually, it was it used to be referred to as junk DNA areas, but um, right. there are some areas which may a, a particular um, section. But generally, no, it's it's not the areas that we test for um, are not generally associated with um, diseases or specific characteristics other than yeah. repeat segments. Although, would it be possible, I mean, if you have an unknown sample from a crime, and I've read this, but I don't think it's accepted yet, where you can say, okay, he's, 5'11", he's got blue eyes, he's got freckles, he's got blonde hair. Uh, Yes, there have been, um, actually, uh, there has been some testing, and now, um, and this has been, gosh, for probably 10, more than 10 years now, um, where some... uh, Police agencies have taken samples um, either from a homicide victim or a, a rape victim and submitted it when there's been a true cold case and they have absolutely no leads in it and have submitted it to um, these uh, agencies that have um, can look at uh, phenotypic, and by phenotypic I mean, you know, is it a Caucasian individual, is it a Hispanic individual, is it um, somebody with blonde hair or blue eyes, um, and they have been able to get some of that information to be able to at least use for investigative purposes and to limit who their potential um, pot of suspects may be. So okay. I remember a case probably a couple of cases back in early 2000s where um, samples were sent. Now, it doesn't spit out a name and an address or anything like that. But And in this day and age, I mean, there have been recent cases in the news where um, cold cases, samples have been submitted to Ancestry, and they're starting to, um, since you did have an ancestry, you get a list of potential relatives, or and they've been able to um, provide police agencies with potential relatives of a suspect, and that police agencies can then start tracking down people that may be relatives to ask for information about. Um, You know, do you have anybody in your family who was living in this state or who, um, you know, went to this college or, you know, things like that to be able to um, solve crimes? Right. And that's that's the Golden State Killer is the biggest one that was in the news. Yes, yes. And there was just one a couple, I think it was either last week or the week before that, a man um, who was found in Maine, and he is accused of killing um, a, uh, I think she was an 18-year-old girl in Alaska back in 1983, I believe it was. So okay. that was just a week or two ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember, though, reading about one where he, where the, the guy actually was, 
I think included with ancestry DNA, but later DNA tests excluded him. I'm not sure how that worked. He was on uh, news shows talking about the privacy concerns and issues. But that's that is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I I have uh, we've been trying to locate members of my father's family. And so far, everybody that I find is either my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, or my two grandparents. Hmm. And I have my, my mother's family. I haven't found anybody from my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather's family. Hmm. Although names I've never heard before. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Initially, genetically, I was 40% Scandinavian, which was odd because we don't have an Anderson or a Hanson going back generations. Hmm. Uh, but they recently revised it. Now I'm mostly British. <laughs> and a little bit of German. So, um, but that is, it, it's a fascinating area. Yes, it is. And uh, so, okay, we'll move on uh, off my off my segue. Uh, the testing methods and the development of the testing methods uh, from the 1980s and 90s. And um, if you just, you know, we've gone over RFLP and the PCR, which is not really a testing method so much as an amplification. Yes, process. PCR. PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction, and it was the technology that allowed uh, DNA to be, um, small segments of DNA to be amplified so that it could be run through a detection method. Um, and and then you once you run it through the detection method, um, you develop a profile in the reference samples to profile from the evidence and make those comparisons. So using PCR technology, there were various types of uh, tests it was used for. Um, the first one was um, a dot plot test, and it looked for a specific area called um, DQ-alpha. Um, and that was just one area of DNA um, that you would analyze. Um, and then there were five additional areas which were all referred to collectively as polymarker. So DQ-alpha and polymarker um, were dot-blot tests which used the PCR technology. Um, the, those were the first tests. So when RFLP, if you didn't have enough DNA in order to get a result from that, um, generally, you could use the DQ-alpha and polymarker. The problem was the areas that were being tested didn't have a lot of variability. So in the polymarker test, one of the areas that you looked at, actually a number of the areas, the only, there were only three possibilities in the, in the general population. You were either an A, you were a B, or you were an AB. Um, and then if, if there were two areas where there were three potential uh, characteristics, and so you could be um, there. Were, there, so that gave rise to six different possible combinations. With testing that 
came after that where you were looking at the short tandem repeats, you might have one area that had 21 different possibilities in the population or 50 possibilities in the population or more. So it was much more discriminating. The STR testing was much more discriminating than the DQ-alpha and the polymarker testing. Um, so it was just a progression that it went from the dot blot and then to the STR, which ultimately was where you see peaks on a graph, which that was the electropherogram that I spoke of earlier. Mm-hmm. And then you compare the evidence to the reference samples for those. Um, and that testing uh, was much, much more discriminating. And you can test a lot of different areas at the same time. Um, most of those kits they started with, you could look at um, nine different areas or five different areas was the first kit. Then there was nine areas using a second kit. Then it went to um, 15 different areas or 16 different areas, depending on who was manufacturing the kit. So you were, as the technology progressed, you could use the same amount of sample and get more and more information um, from the same size sample that you were using previously, but taken a lot more. And in referring to the test kits, what is what does that mean? What is contained within um, there, the test kit? There were, and I know some of, of it's proprietary. Right, well, right. There so. were a couple of manufacturers. There are a couple of commercial manufacturers that have created kits to be used in the forensic market, and um, depending on which manufacturer. Um, Different manufacturers will include different number of loci or locations of DNA that their kit will test. So one manufacturer might offer a test kit that looks at nine locations, and they may offer a second kit that looks at 16, and their competitor may create a kit that looks at 16 different locations also, but there, and, and 13 of those were all the same. Those were the CODIS loci because each, you had to test all 13 of the CODIS loci, but then the different manufacturers would include other locations of DNA or loci um, in their kit, which they would tout would make it more special and make it more discriminating than their competitors. And so it was just, there's two major, um, nowadays I think there's more than that. There's at least three manufacturers that offer kits. And the kits used today look at anywhere from 24 to 27 different locations of DNA. Okay. And you can't talk about what comes in, what comes in the kit. Is it, and, you know, an enzyme or protein, a, a solution, it is or is it software? No, the kit is basically um, contains all of the all of the chemicals and that you need to amplify the different areas of DNA. So it's got everything okay. in it that will allow you to analyze the DNA. Okay, that. That is a great explanation. Um, all right. So, and then we also have uh, 
mitochondrial DNA. Yes. And mitochondrial. That, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> mitochondrial DNA. Um, if you think of a cell like a fried egg, and a lot. Um, so if you if, if picture a fried egg, the yolk portion is called. It would be the nucleus. And that's where the DNA is housed that you inherit from your mother and your father. In the white part of the outside of the egg, that's called the cytoplasm. And in this cytoplasm, there are these little organelles that are called mitochondria. Mitochondria are the organelles that um, are, are sites that will produce energy. Um, these mitochondria have their own special type of DNA, and it's only inherited from your mother. It's only inherit. It's it's maternally inherited. So you have mitochondrial DNA, which is exactly the same as your mother's. If you have siblings, your siblings have the exact same mitochondrial DNA as you do. If your mother had a sister, your mitochondrial DNA is the same as your aunt. If your aunt had children, then your mitochondrial DNA is the same as your cousin's by that aunt. And so it's maternally inherited. Um, Within the cytoplasm of the egg, so in each cell, there might be hundreds of mitochondria, whereas there's only one yolk. So you only have one copy of your nuclear DNA, but you have hundreds Mm -hmm. of copies of your mitochondrial DNA. So there's a lot more of it, um, and you can test that mitochondrial DNA. There's there's a couple of areas where there's a lot of variation in the population, um, and you can test those areas um, if, let's say, the nuclear DNA is too degraded. Let's say the um, it's been... A, a body which has been exposed in the woods for um, weeks on end, you may not be able to get enough uh, in Texas in the summer, I'll throw in. Um, <laughs> you might not be yeah. able to get nuclear DNA from that body, but you might be able to get mitochondrial DNA because the mitochondrial DNA is a little over 16,000 bases long. It's like 16,500 and some odd bases long, whereas the nuclear DNA is over 3.3 billion, and so that's going to break down a lot more readily than this much smaller segment. Um, and so mitochondrial DNA is really good in a couple of different situations. One uh you can find mitochondrial DNA in hair samples and it's found in, you can get it from the shaft of the hair, whereas nuclear DNA can only be found in the root of the hair. So if you have a hair that does not have a root on it, you can test it for mitochondrial DNA, but you can't test it for nuclear. Um, And then the other situation is if, you have remains that were recovered 30 years ago um, and you don't necessarily have a comparison sample. 
because of the maternal lineage, you can test someone years later and still right. make that potential connection. Right. And they did that with uh, the Romanovs. Yes. Testing a relative of Anna Anderson. They had a reference sample from her. Correct. As a result of some testing that she had done by hospital. And they also tested Prince Philip because he was a maternal descendant of Queen Victoria. Yeah, and I know so they that. were able to determine uh, his relationship to Alexandra as well as her children and all of her children. And yeah, I, so mitochondrial DNA is very, very helpful in 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 those right. types of situations. Yeah, but and the it's hair. Not so. very. Dis- it's not very discriminating like HLA D2 alpha and polymarker because while there's variation, it's still all siblings are going to have identical mitochondrial DNA. Yes. And cousins yeah. on a maternal right. line are going to have identical. I was uh, I had explained that to my uncle once, that you and I have the same mitochondrial DNA because your mother was my mother's mother and your right. mother. And then um, now something interesting that I wanted to ask you about is there a variation among regions of the world? Because two of my cousins, their mother was Japanese. And so would their mitochondrial DNA profiles be varied or different from what you'd find in, in the United States? Well, certainly um, you can use, I mean, you can trace mitochondrial um profiles back and and there are uh trees of mitochondrial um profiles uh you know we all came from one potential line mm. it's just that it it um has uh mutated over time and yes there are certain um, areas where certain profiles are prevalent, and okay. um, yeah, there's there's entire trees uh, that that you can look at a specific profile, and they can say it, it's from this particular section or this particular area or region. So yes, I mean there are different regions uh, have different sequences. Okay. And mitochondrial okay. DNA analysis is done on a base-by-base. Base. It, you look at the sequence of the A's, G's, T's, and C's. Um, so it's a sequence analysis versus uh, the other types of DNA that we've been talking about uh, with the STRs, which are uh, you know short tandem repeats. So it's a slightly different um, analysis. Right, same- right. Mm-hmm. All right, and now we're moving into the 2000s, where STR has um, they've expanded and they can look at more regions, more loci than they could initially. Now, what is the what is the now standard number of regions that you look at? 
the FBI has increased the um, the core loci. So they have originally it was um, 13 loci, and um, that was increased. Let me think. In I I think it was um the mandate I believe was that laboratories had to um increase uh, and use the newer kits or expanded kits by um the end of 2017 and so those now um gosh and I'm I think it's 20 loci now um, that they test for. Now, the commercial kits uh, will vary, and some of the commercial kits will actually look at um, 23 different loci or 25 different loci. So there's different – the different commercial kits have a larger number – most of them have included at least one, and we haven't discussed this yet, one Y STR location so that when you're testing, um, you can determine whether there's a male in the particular sample as well. Okay. That was, yeah, that's the interesting, and that's uh, Y STR is like the male version of mitochondrial DNA, uh, mitochondrial DNA, except that it does not pass to women. That's correct. It only passes to the male. Yep, only males have Y chromosome, and that Y chromosome is passed in its entirety from father to son. And so there's a paternal lineage. Um, Every son will have the same uh, Y STR profile as his father, as his grandfather. If the father has a brother, if his uncle, if the brother, uh, if the uncle had sons, then the male cousins would have the same YSTR profile. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then now mini STR, I've read about that being used in degraded, with degraded evidence. Yes. Uh, many STRs were, they were looking at the same uh, sections. I, many STRs, there were, um, w- there was one kit generally that was used, and it would look at, uh, I believe it was nine, or was it eight, nine areas, um, and what that kit did was it shortened the segment of DNA that was being replicated. Um, And so because the segment was shorter, uh, degradation didn't inhibit um, getting results as much using the mini STR kit. And so it was really good with degraded samples. Um, okay. One of the biggest problems was that you often would end up with mixtures because you would pick up. It was because it was so sensitive. You would pick up um, 
multiple DNA cell sources most of the time. Right. From perhaps a time when crime lab didn't wear masks and gloves and, you know, hoods and booties on their shoes and all those things. Uh, certainly it was possible, yeah, sure. So, because I think it processing has grown and as we've learned more and developed testing methods that can get us more information, you know, we see sometimes crime scenes in the 1970s, they didn't wear gloves. Right. You know, they... Once it was dusted for fingerprints, that's all you could do for it. So there was no need to continue wearing gloves handling it. Um, and then in the 80s, concerns about biological diseases is what led to handling blood-stained items with gloves. But it wasn't so much transfer of DNA as it was concern about a biological hazard. Yes, that's true. In the early '80s, so, we didn't realize DNA was going to even be correct. We we had no idea until Dr. Jeffrey could, you know, found a way. Actually, we we probably I think knew they knew it was there, but they just didn't know how to interpret it, recover it, and uh, and learn anything from it. So. Right, and even back in the days of RFLP, we might have, we were certainly using gloves at that point, but because because you needed such a large sample, it's funny, as the technology has gotten more and more sensitive, we've realized how easy it is for something to potentially become contaminated. So when we were doing RFLP analysis, there were very few laboratories where you would wear a mask, over your right. mouth when you were processing an RFLP sample. But as soon as you started um, using PCR technology and you're amplifying DNA, you realize how easy it was to get, you know, to potentially introduce your own DNA into a sample. And so then right. you know, more and more precautions started being introduced into the and quality control measures into the testing process. Right. And we've seen with touch DNA um, that that is, you know, that's happening more and more with older evidence samples because epithelial cells and or minute uh, DNA transferred through a cough or speaking or anything now can be recovered and identified. Yes, it's possible. And that touches epithelial or non-biological evidence. So, well, epithelial saliva. It's still biological. Now, it's, if it's DNA, it's, it's biological. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Non-fluid. Is that really? No. Um, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, touch DNA is, is generally referred to as, um, well, some people say transfer DNA, some people say touch DNA. Uh, generally, it was um, or is considered mm-hmm. to be DNA which is 
transferred, and and it's not necessarily it doesn't have to be a direct contact. Um, so touch DNA. If I shake your hand, my DNA is on your hand. Your you then shake uh, somebody else's hand, and you could transfer my DNA to their hand uh, without me ever touching that third person. My DNA could be found on their hand. Um, so that. Some people say touch, some people call it transfer. It could be a direct transfer, it could be a secondary transfer. Um, so there's a number of ways, but touch DNA typically refers to small quantity DNA. Okay. All right, and it could be epithelial cells from the skin. And sweat, now I've heard sweat DNA, but I've also heard criticism of people saying sweat DNA. Um, but it's really it's epithelial cells, microscopic cells from the skin that are transferred to an object or person. Yeah, yeah, generally. Yeah, sure. Generally, generally, yeah, it's the epithelial cells that are being transferred. Okay, and those are everywhere in our bodies, on our skin, our mouths. Yes. In different areas, we won't yeah, go into gen- it. Yep. Generally, epithelial cells are the cells that that line um, your organs. That yes, your skin. Um, they're the cells that are found in your in your oral cavity. Yes. Yeah. And we shed about thirty thousand an hour. Okay. And, yeah, old mattresses are full of them. Yes. <laughs> if you watch the commercials for the mattress stores. Yes. Um, <laughs> so um, moving on now, uh, when you get a DNA sample, and I, I have on the outline interpreting DNA mixtures, but I think it's more um, what do you, what are the criteria for a quoting match, and what are the criteria for exclusion? Are you talking about specifically in a mixture or in general? Well, actually, even just in general. In general, if you have a profile, if you have a single source profile um, on, on a piece of evidence and you're comparing it to a known reference profile, uh, if the um, alleles, which are simply the characteristics found at a particular locus. Um, so if at, let's say, at one locus you have a 10 and an 11 on your evidence sample and the suspect is a, a 12 and a 13, that suspect obviously could not contribute a 10 and 11 and they would be excluded. Okay. Um, if it was the same, if the same characteristics are found at each of the loci and the profiles are consistent at each of the loci, then you would not be able to, you would basically say it's a, it's a match or uh, you can't exclude this individual and a statistic would be calculated. Okay. Now, in a mixture, you could have there's a number of, of different scenarios. You could have a mixture where you have a major contributor and a minor contributor. 
and it just means that the major contributor in the in the totality of of DNA that's found there, um, one person contributed a larger majority of the DNA than another person. And the person who contributed the larger majority would be considered the major contributor and a minor contributor. If, let's say, um, it's a sexual assault case, generally a major contributor is going to be consistent with the victim because evidence is collected from their own bodies. You can subtract out what is contributed from the known individual and then compare the alleles which are foreign to the na- to the to the victim uh to a suspect and draw one of those two same conclusions either they can be included um or they're excluded or if there isn't enough information let's say you only have two uh, alleles which are foreign to a victim that really may not be enough to draw a conclusion that somebody's included or excluded. You, you may, you, at that point, you just say there's just insufficient in, genetic information foreign to the victim for me to draw any conclusion. Okay. Um, and, now, and so there are some situations where it's an inconclusive. Right. I think that was what I was trying to refer to earlier. Um, now, also though, how many how many loci have to be consistent in order to consider it a match? Because I've read in uh, a couple of cases where the attorneys for a defendant are arguing that thirty at ten ten out of thirteen was good enough for a match to an alternate suspect. Uh if you have wasn't really 13, an exclusion. If you have thirteen pieces of information or if you have if you have a profile at thirteen loci and a defendant matches at ten of those thirteen but not at the other three, that should be an exclusion. I mean okay. if that information now let's say you only have genetic information foreign to the victim at 10 and it happens and the defendant has characteristics which are the same as those that you see in the evidence at that 10, then you would not exclude him. But if you have 13, you know, information at 13 loci and he matches at 10, but not at the other three, he's excluded. Okay. That, this is an argument about an alternate suspect in a case. And so that's that's what I thought when I was reading the argument that, you know, if you have 13 loci for an inclusion, all 13 loci. And this isn't – it isn't uh, a mixture or anything. It's 13 loci. Yeah, if it's a 13 loci profile and and an alternate suspect only matches at 10, he's excluded. Okay. Okay. And um, now I I wanted to go over tampering, which is deliberate versus contamination, but we're coming up on 947, 
and um, that's uh, something that you don't really you don't really deal with in your daily work in the lab. So I think we're gonna we might save that for another another topic for another guest. Okay. Um, because you can have tampering deliberately to frame someone, and you can have inadvertent contamination, as we've discussed about. You know, we didn't take precautions in 1990 that we take today. Correct. Um, now, as I understand it, the statistics that you come uh, that you have for the pro- genetic profiles that you develop on evidence or or with reference to suspects. That when you say one out of five million. As I understand that, that means that you would have to go through 5 million people before you could randomly pick someone with the same genetic profile. And I understand that that's because each allele at each loci, it's the combination of all 13 loci that make that unique to that suspect or that person. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> the statistic, <laughs> the random match statistic um, that is calculated on a single source profile is, uh, so let's say it's one in uh, one in five million. What that means is that if I were to randomly select the first person that walked by and I were to test them, that there would be a one in five million. It, that that it, I wouldn't... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. Um, no, that's okay. I would expect to have to test approximately 5 million people before I would find one person who had that same combination. So if if I were to test the first person that walked by and develop a profile I would expect that the probability that they would have the same would be one in five million. The next person would be one in five million. The next person would be one in five million. So each person that I would test would have a one in five million. Uh, I would expect the probability that they would have that same would be one in five million. However, uh, so in other words, I would expect to have to test about five million in order to find somebody who had that same profile. The numbers today, because we're like testing 20 loci um, or more, is I mean the numbers are astronomical. I mean they're sextillion, right. septillion, octillion. Um, yeah, I mean the the numbers are are extremely extremely rare. I mean definitely most of the time you wouldn't expect more than one person in the world to have that particular profile unless of course there was an identical sibling. Right. And it is the combination of the numbers at each allele. Correct. Wait, the, the allele it it's at not each the combination. Loci. Yeah, it's not really the combination. well the profile in in its totality um but each particular allele uh, we know what the frequency, what the approximate frequency in the population is in various um, ethnicities for that particular. So, for instance, a, a 10 at 
CSF, which is one of the DNA locations, um, might be uh, 2% of the population. Um, And so we know the approximate frequencies of each of the alleles seen at the in in the general population and you multiply those frequencies um, throughout the profile so you multiply the frequency of the alleles at CSF times the frequency of the alleles that you see in this particular sample at the second uh, locus times the frequency of alleles that you see at the third okay. locus and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and you know through to the complete profile to come up with the statistic. Okay, okay. that is and that's that is a math way beyond my my capabilities. Yes, and it well, depends I'm, on whether you see one from. peak or two peaks, and so yeah. But I mean, it's there's definitely it's a it's a um, acceptable statistical uh, calculation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the, the, the database, the population frequency database, who maintains that and how is the data collected? Well, there are different databases that are available. Um, there is an, uh, an, a database that was compiled by the FBI, um, and there's uh, other databases. There's one that's been compiled by, um, um, I believe, NIST. Um, I believe there is um, that, another database that um, has been compiled by um, a commercial organization company. Um, and so there's there's different databases. And actually, very early on, states started developing their own databases, and what they would do is they would just um, collect samples. Some of them would get samples from the Red Cross to develop them. Um, there are databases that have been developed from um, alleged mothers and fathers and paternities. And there's been comparison of these data, of these various databases, and it was found that the frequencies that were determined by each of these databases individually, although there may have been some variations, they were seeing the same trends. So the most common alleles in one database was the most common allele in another database, although there may have been a, you know, a slight percentage difference. One might have been 11% in one and, and, and 12% in another. Um, mm-hmm. But overall, what they found was that the databases were very um, statistically consistent with each other, although there might have been some variations. And so... Um, when you're getting into um, the numbers of loci that we're looking at, it was determined that if you had a minimum of a couple of hundred people or samples to create the database in each of the ethnicities, that that was probably sufficient and that the numbers that you would end up with um, were fairly similar within a um, 
within tenfold between okay. databases. Right. And I've seen some defense attorneys cr- uh, criticize <clears throat> that there aren't enough, uh, like, you know, there aren't, there are maybe 3,000 reference samples in a database, and the defense attorneys think it should be 100,000 or a million. Yeah, and like I said, there have been, you know, studies of, of databases that have 200 people versus databases that have 10,000 people, and that it has been found that they are very similar. Right. And there is some difference as far as frequency goes over different racial yeah. ca- uh, yes. categories. Yeah, certain alleles are found more commonly in one ethnicity versus another. Uh, You know, just like in ABO blood typing, um, uh, you know, some type A blood, I believe, um, is, or type B blood, excuse me, is found in a higher frequency in African Americans than it is in Caucasians. Um, And Mm -hmm. we see that with, with alleles, with various alleles, uh, at certain loci, there are some alleles that are found more frequently in Hispanics than, are, than, than it is in Caucasians or in Asians or in African Americans. So, and, and that's why you have databases for for different ethnicities and not just one big database. Right. And then um, I think we're getting close to the finish line. Um, sources of DNA and. Uh, we talked a little bit nuclear, yes, um, skin, uh, epithelial cells, oh, and blood saliva. cells, epithelial cells, blood. yes, yep. Uh, so and nuclear then is... mitochondrial can come from teeth or bones or hair shaft. Sure. Any cell is going to have mitochondrial DNA in it as well. Okay. But so sometimes degraded blood. Right. Oh, okay. it'll have, yeah, the white blood cells will have mitochondrial DNA. The mitochondrial is just, um, it's more most helpful when you have um, very old bone remains or a hair shaft. Right. And then what are some of the factors that affect or degrade, affect recovery of DNA or degrade DNA? Uh, High humidity, high heat, um, exposure to some chemicals will cause DNA to degrade. Bleaches will cause DNA to degrade. Um, You know, bodies that have been embalmed, um, the formaldehyde fixes the DNA, and sometimes it's difficult to extract it. Um, so there there can be any number of either environmental or chemicals that could cause DNA to degrade. And then immersion in water? Um, that would another... certainly dilute it. Um, it doesn't okay. necessarily increase the degradation rate unless it's very hot water. Okay. All right. And then um, do we go about our days 
leaving DNA all over the place? Yes, we do. Theoretically. <laughs> yes, we do. No, we, but, we shed. We shed, and the numbers vary from 100 to over 300 hairs a day. We shed right. um, over 30,000 skin cells an hour. Now, not all skin cells um, will potentially be a source of DNA, but certainly we we leave our DNA everywhere. But if you have a gun used in a murder and it's recovered, but the perpetrator's DNA isn't on the gun, does that mean he didn't commit the murder? No, not necessarily at all. Okay. Okay. Because that's the argument, son. A lot of jurors want DNA on everything associated with a crime. Yes. Um, I don't know if you followed the Dahlia DiPolito case. Uh, her attorneys were criticizing the police department for not swabbing the money she gave their undercover informant for DNA to prove that she handled that money. Even though she's on video counting the money out and handing it to the the informant. Hmm. Well, the lack of DNA does not necessarily mean that an individual did not come into contact with a particular article. Um, Always going to find DNA. Okay. And that could be because of the factors, high humidity, high heat, Certainly, and money I mean, is. I don't think money's a good. I don't think money's a great uh, vehicle for any kind of evidence. Uh, because it's handled it, I mean, anyway. I, I know I said no specific cases, but that one sticks in my craw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't follow because it, so on, I don't know. <laughs> she's on video. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, here's twelve hundred dollars. Kill my husband. And you know they expected the police to to swab each one of those bills and get her DNA to prove that she handled that money. To me, and it's on video. <laughs> right, exactly. The video should trump if they don't find her DNA. And I think money's not a good. Because you'd probably find a lot of profiles on the money you got out of an ATM machine. Yeah. Generally, money is not a great, I mean, unless it's a blood spot on the money. Um, But generally, money is one of those things that we typically find mixtures on. Right. So, all right. And then, um, I, I, you know, I had some tampering allegations, but I don't think I'm even going to... I don't think I'm going to put you on the spot that way okay. because we've, we've reached 10 p.m. And I think if you, you, I think you're an hour ahead of us. I am. Yes. So it's 11 p.m. I want to thank you again for the time that you took tonight to talk to us. My um, pleasure. This was a great informative interview. And Michael has not said a word because Michael's he's been, been fascinated, I'm sure. 
Yes. Yeah, Michael has been absorbing. So thank you again. This was, it really was a great, you know, it helped me understand DNA evidence better. Well, and it was the my process pleasure. Better. And thank you again for the time that you spent with us. And uh, have a great night. Thank you. You too. You're quite welcome. Thank Good you. Night. All right. Good Bye-bye. night. Bye-bye. All right. That was awesome. Yes, absolutely. It was uh, fantastic. Uh, definitely informative. Definitely interesting. I mean, y'all got a little bit over my Arkansas education, but, you know, it's definitely interesting stuff. But it was, it was really great. Um, she is very knowledgeable. She's been doing this a long time. And uh, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, to finish the interview on a high note and thank her before Log Talk might cut me off or your Wi-Fi might reset itself. Right. Uh, I don't think the Wi-Fi is going to be a problem. Blog talk, I feel like. If you're listening, well, it did that the other night, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago. Um, And I never forget. Um, So I hope if if Megan's listening, um, she understands that we've had some technical issues, and I just wanted to make sure that we had everything we wanted to say on the air. So, um, but I, I, I might, in, you know, we might invite her back another time oh, absolutely. to talk about tampering sure and things like that. Yeah, I'm sure Pardon? we only scratch this. I'm sure we only yeah, scratch this. Yeah, yeah. Right. But like I said, I, I, I wanted to conclude it and not get, you know, not get cut off by blog talk when we get to two hours. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. so, um so, but that was really great. Yes, ma'am. And I thoroughly would. enjoyed that interview. And time flew. Oh yeah, absolutely. One of the um, shortest long shows we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, if I hadn't left the heater running and ended up boiling in here, probably continued talking until now. <laughs> So, all right. Well, I am going to be enjoying my day off tomorrow. Oh, nice. Yeah. I get to uh, stay home for Mardi Gras because you can't get downtown. You can't get anywhere downtown Yeah. uh, because of the parade. It starts at like 8 o'clock in the morning and pretty much runs until... The NOPD mounted unit goes through the French Quarter and literally herds people out of the French Quarter ahead of the oh, wow. super trucks. <laughs> yes. And it, it's an awesome sight to behold. Um, if you can find the old episodes of Cops where they oh, did I've Mardi Gras. Already. I think you were the one who uh-huh. put that picture out on Facebook. Yeah, I've seen pictures. It's crazy. It's like, yeah, and one of the cops episodes, I think one of the officers, I think it was one of the officers on foot, he was telling people, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, because that was when that song was out, (laughs) back in the 90s. 
So, but yeah, that was yeah. a great episode. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and she is. And what I liked is she wasn't overly technical, or um, you know, I mean, she was speaking in plain English that we could understand, even though her vocabulary probably dwarfs mine. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, definitely some stuff that still went over my head, but, you know, hey, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Anyway, well, that is another great show. And we're ready to do the outro? Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week for Episode 2, State of California versus Charles Manson. In August of 1969, Manson's plan to start a race war that would leave him in charge of the world, began with the murders of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frykowski, and Steve Parent. The following night, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were murdered in their home in furtherance of Manson's plan for world domination. September 1969, Manson and two, and two of his followers murdered Donald Shorty Shea, a ranch hand at Spawn Ranch, who Manson believed had reported the family to the police, which resulted in a raid on Spawn Ranch. Manson's also believed to be behind the murders of Marina Elizabeth Habe and attorney Ronald Hughes. We'll talk about the investigation of the Tate LaBianca murders, as well as the evidence against Manson and the statement that solved the case. We look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great week and stay safe. Good night.